Tomorrow marks the 42nd anniversary of my conversion. 42 years ago tomorrow, I had gone to an early morning Bible study in Oklahoma City, uh, hopefully to get this friend off my back, and then Sandy and I were going to go water skiing that day on Memorial Day in 1980, and the Lord met me there, came to saving faith, trusting in the Jesus of the Bible. And up until that point, I would tell you that one of the things that was true about me was I really had no interest in knowing the Bible. I'd grown up in a somewhat evangelical home with parents who were devout believers, but when I viewed the Bible, I thought either simplistically, a couple of David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den stories, or ultra-mysterious, and it was not meant for anybody to know. Well, as soon as I was converted, I had an insatiable hunger for the Bible that really hasn't waned at all in 42 years. And so friends and kind oil men sent us to Bible college in Memphis and seven months after my conversion. And I was insatiable. I, had, I could take classes on all aspects of the Bible and did for the next two and a half years. And one of the things I realized is that most believers bump along with the most infantile understandings of Scripture, understanding very little once you get past Genesis 1-1 and Psalm 23 and John 3-16. And so one of the things that I've tried to do here for 22 years is to raise the bar, to engage in preaching the whole counsel of God, not just verse by verse and book by book, but also doctrine by doctrine. And what I've seen is in the heart of true believers, there is a hunger for Scripture, a hunger to understand the Bible. So over the last several years, we have, in our summer evening series, taken a break from our normal consecutive Old Testament exposition to focus on doctrinal and topical subjects. Some of the issues we've addressed in our summer evening series include a series on the seven deadly sins, a series on Christian love, a series on affliction and suffering, a series on the basics of Christian prayer, a series on the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. And this summer, it's my intention to examine the subject of biblical typology, to raise the bar considerably. Biblical typology seeks to mine the riches out of the Old Testament. It takes very seriously the, the instruction that Pastor Dodds just read in your hearing a moment ago from Romans 15.4, where Paul says, whatever things were written before, he's talking about the Old Testament, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Biblical typology as well takes, takes seriously the teaching model of Jesus. You'll remember the day of his resurrection he meets two men on the road to Emmaus, and we read these words of him and what he did. Jesus says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. And then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Jesus gives them an Old Testament walkthrough and says, let me tell you how every one of these things, every one of these types and shadows and symbols point to me. Jesus insisted in John 5.39, the scriptures testify to me. So at the same time, and I, I realize that I may be biting off a whole lot more than I can chew, but at the exact same time that we're looking at biblical types in our PM service, I will begin examining in our morning service 
the parables of Jesus, the New Testament parables. So you'll notice the two subjects and what they have in common. And yes, I've thought about this and, and it's planned. The New Testament parables in the morning, the Old Testament types in the evening. And this will be teaching us some skill in our handling of the biblical text. And so from now until September, the end of both of these series, we'll be engaged in what we frequently talk about here, namely the pursuit of Christian maturity. And we're going to be doing that to seeking to understand at a deep and a rich level the Old Testament types, the parables of Jesus. And we will learn to be profoundly dependent upon the Holy Spirit in his ministry because he's been given to us to indwell us. And one of his great ministries, according to John 16, 13, that Jesus told his disciples is, the Spirit is going to come and indwell you for this specific purpose, to guide you into all truth. We will learn nothing about the types of the Old Testament. We'll learn less than nothing about the parables of the New Testament unless the Spirit opens our eyes and guides us into all truth. So let's ask for that now. Our Father, we confess that we prefer the words and productions of men to your holy and perfect word. But now, by the gracious ministry of your Holy Spirit, turn our thoughts and attentions away from that which is trivial to that which is lasting and true. The psalmist said that he hungered and thirsted for your word. Lord, we ask that you would give us that same passion to hear you speak to us in your word. Correct our errors, teach us truth, and mature us through this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you would indulge me on an extra long introduction tonight. I promise we won't do this every Sunday night as we engage in our discussion on typology. My, my intention is, is to look at one type per evening. Tonight we'll look, somewhat briefly, in a little while, about the type of Adam, how Adam is viewed as a type, and he's the first Adam, and Jesus is the second Adam. You perhaps picked up on that a moment ago when Pastor Dodds was reading the scripture, that the New Testament writers all line up to say this, that Jesus is the second or the last Adam. But what I want to do before we talk about that type, and next week we'll be looking at Noah's Ark as a type of Christ, and on and on through the major types of the Old Testament. I want to spend some time talking about types because perhaps you've never, ever thought about typology. And so let's start with the beginning. I'm going to act like you've never even thought that there's such a thing as a type in Scripture. So I want to introduce you to three words that the New Testament uses that we just sort of very simply use as type. You'll need your Bible. Look at Romans chapter 5. And again, to, to grow up and mature in your understanding, you have to dig into Scripture. And that's what we'll be doing tonight. Romans 5, Paul says in verse 14, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Notice what we're told in Romans 5.14. This man, Adam, is a type. Is he a historical figure? Absolutely. But he also is a type. Now, the Greek word that's used there is the word tupos. It's easy to remember because it almost is exactly the same as our word type. And the word tupos means an impression that you get by pushing down a wax seal. The word tupos is used 15 times in the New Testament. And so Paul here, 
thinking about Adam, he says, yes, he's a historical figure, but he's a type. He's a model. He's a foreshadowing. He's a looking forward to the anti-type, the real thing. And then that's the first word, tupos. Then look at Colossians 2. This is a, acquainting you with some of the vocabulary about typology. In Colossians 2.17, Paul says, he's talking about these Old Testament issues, and he says in Colossians 2.17, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, they are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And the Greek word there, shadow, is, is the word skia, which means something dim. You, you can't really make it out. You can sort of see the contours and the edges, but we know it's, it's, it's foreshadowing something else, but we can just really see the shadowy outline. And then the third term. Look at Hebrews 8, and this is really sort of the locus classicus on typology. Hebrews 8. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1, We have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Now, the argument that the writer of Hebrews is going to make is, is if you think that the sanctuary and the tabernacle are somewhere in over in, in Palestine, this is why I always laugh when... People want to go look for Noah's Ark, or they want, to, they want to try to find the tabernacle. I think, don't you get it? These things were worn out when the new covenant comes. They were shadows. They were types. They were meant to perish with the using. They're pictures of the real throne, the real temple, the real tabernacle, where the real high priest is seated. So notice what the writer says. Hebrews, Hebrews 8, verse 4, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, those, those structures, the thrones, the altars, the tabernacle, the temple. And it's interesting, the term that's used here, third Greek term, and I promise I'll be done with the Greek lesson for the night. In verse 5, when the writer of Hebrews says, who served the copy, this is the Greek word hupodigma, which means outlines, copies of heavenly things. So <clears throat> that's, that's sort of the, the working vocabulary of the New Testament. Tupos, skia, hupodigma. Now let me start giving you some definitions of what a type is. Perhaps you are here tonight for the first time and you thought, what are you talking about? Types. God has ordained and superintended specific persons, events, institutions, and he's commissioned their recording in the Old Testament so as to anticipate a greater realization or enactment in future events connected with the coming of the Messiah. Types are objects, object lessons, pictures by which God taught his old covenant people about his grace and saving power. The old covenant was sort of like, and I'm using the term here favored by a lot of the reformers, the old covenant was like a kindergarten in which God's people were trained in divine things, by which they were, they were led to look for better things to come. The best writer on all of these subjects of biblical interpretation was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian named Patrick Fairbairn. And Fairbairn said, 
God in the types of the Old Testament was teaching his children their letters. But now in the New Covenant, he's teaching them to put their letters together. And they find that the letters, arrange them as they will, always spell Christ and nothing but Christ. That's what the types do. They're always pointing us towards Christ. Now, to, to begin this way, I need to tell you what the presuppositions are. There are at least four very important presuppositions when we study typology. The first is the sovereignty of God. That God has the right and power to do as he wills, to bring himself the maximum glory. He has the right to arrange history so that it all is pointing towards his son. Second presupposition is God's decree. God has eternally foreordained and decreed whatsoever comes to pass. He has a plan in history that's unfolding. That's what we mean by the decree. It's his plan. God is engineering history and has embedded it with images that point forward. And then thirdly, our presupposition is God is a God of providence. By his providence, God is working all things according to his decree and will. If there is no providence, meaning God controlling and governing, governing, then all of the things that I'll point out are only coincidence. If there is no such thing as providence. But you'll hear me say it Sunday night after Sunday night. What we're looking at when we look at typology is God's providence over and over again. How he ordains and embeds and plants things in history. All of which, all these types are like road signs pointing to Jesus to come. And then the fourth presupposition is the unity of scripture. Patterns of type and anti-type. Prophecy and fulfillment abound because the one God gave his one word. The Bible has a most careful design. The careful unfolding of redemption history. When that's ignored, men will see no significance to events and institutions. But prophecies are given, types are mandated, so that we might learn to await their fulfillment and marvel at that. Now let me begin to point out what makes a true type, because every so often I'll give you some warnings. There are people who go crazy with types. And maybe even some of your favorite preachers, and yes, some of mine. And I try to be super careful about what we will label as a type. That's why you'll notice the 10 or 12 types that we'll look at are, are all agreed upon by every evangelical responsible interpreter, yes, But once you get outside of those bounds, people start seeing a type under every rock. So let me give you some of the features and characteristics of a legit type. First is, it must be a true picture of the person or thing it represents. There must be a correspondence and a true resemblance. So for example, Aaron, the high priest, is a rough figure of Christ, the greater high priest. A second guideline There must be a divine appointing. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the Lord tells the children of Israel things like this. For example, in Exodus 25, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, According to all that I've shown you, that is the heavenly pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So Moses and Aaron, they don't have any freedom. They have to make the tabernacle and then the temple later exactly according to pattern because God says, if you, if you tweak this, if you allow human ingenuity to come in, you'll ruin my type. 
And the tabernacle and the temple must point directly and exactly to Christ. And then another guideline for typology, a type always prefigures something future. So in that sense, it's a form of prophecy. Now, just again, a little vocabulary. You're going to hear me use this word about 100 times over the next 10 to 12 weeks. Type and anti-type. The type is the shadow. It's the picture. It's truth on a lower plane on the earth. The anti-type is the reality. Now, that's going to be hard for you to wrap your head around because we think, well, Carl, reality wasn't that building, the temple, wasn't it real? Yes, but it was just a type, just a shadow. The real temple, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 8, is in heaven. The real throne is in heaven. The real high priest is in heaven. Let's spread out and think a little bit more about types before we look at the first, our first type tonight. Classes of types. What can legitimately be used as a type? First of all, persons may be types. So, for example, we'll see tonight, Adam is a type of Christ as the head of the race. The point that the New Testament wants to make over and over again is Jesus is like Adam in this sense. Just as Adam represented all his posterity descending from him by ordinary generation, so Jesus represents all his posterity descending from him by special generation. Persons can be types. Joseph is a type of Christ. He's the rejected kinsman yet future savior. David is the type of Christ as the great king. Joshua is a type of Christ. Maybe the easiest in the Old Testament. His name is the same as Jesus. He's a conqueror over all his enemies. Or institutions may be types, such as the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Passover lamb perfectly prefigures the saving work of Christ. Offices may be types. You'll see that when we look at Moses the prophet, type of Christ, Aaron the high priest, type of Christ, David the king. So the three offices that Christ bears, prophet and priest and king, of course, in the Old Testament you have men who fulfill that office and they point to Christ. Actions may be a type. In fact, we are told in John chapter 3, that the lifting up on a pole of a brazen serpent is a type of the crucifixion. It's inescapable. The New Testament, John 3, tells us it's a type. It's in, we can't get away from that. So let me tell you where to start. My hope is, is that you'll go home, and this week as you start reading your Bible, you'll say, hey, I think I need to call Carl and, and ask him about this. Remember, my email address is dan at woodruffroad.com. And so if you have questions, send it to that email address. But as you're digging into the scriptures, you're thinking, I wonder if this is a legitimate type. Well, for the beginning Bible student, start by observing the list of all the things that use the word new. So for example, in the, in the New Testament, we are told in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, we're told all about the new creation. Well, guess what the type is? The old creation. We're told about the new covenant in Hebrews 9. The type is the old covenant. We're told about the new tabernacle in Hebrews 8. The type is the old tabernacle. Well, a good example of typology is continuity. The new always exceeds, it, there's continuation, but it always exceeds and outstrips the former in clarity. So we see the idea of escalation. 
The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 is a, is a picture of Christ's sacrifice. David is a, a type, a dim one, a sinful one, but a type of the covenant-keeping king who will lead the people of God. Moses is a, is a brilliant but flawed prophet, but he's a type, and it escalates into Christ, who's the perfect prophet. So how do types connect to Christ? Old Testament types, New Testament Savior. Well, through similarity or resemblance, Adam makes a life or death decision that affects billions of others. So did Jesus. In the tabernacle and temple, God dwelt in the midst of his people. In Jesus coming to earth, God dwells in the midst of his people. Or contrast. A type can be by contrast where the fulfillment is often better than or unlike. So with that rapid background, let's look at the first of our types. That is the type Adam as a type of Christ. Look back at Romans 5 for just a moment. Passage that Pastor Dodds read a moment ago. And we'll briefly consider how the New Testament speaks of Adam as a type of Christ. And I want you to notice the writer of Romans is very clearly laying down this pattern. In fact, he just simply says as much in verse 14. This is one of the clearest statements where the New Testament just says, uh, Hey, you don't even have to be awake to get this one. Adam is a type. So listen to the text. Look at verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of of him who was to come. And so you'll want to circle that and put arrows on and say, okay, I'm keeping score from now on. This is number one. First type. We don't even get out of the first three chapters of Genesis without seeing this very clear type. And what is it that he's supposed to typify? Read on in Romans 5. The free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, that's Adam, many died much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Skip down to verse 19, where we're told, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And the point that Paul is making here is, is when you think of Adam and his primary contribution to understanding Christ, here's Adam's contribution. He made a decision wherein he represented a huge number, billions. He was a decision maker. He was, to use theological language, he was a federal head, a covenant head. He was acting on behalf of all who would come after him. But Jesus is the covenant head who didn't fail. He was the one who acted and acted perfectly and righteously. Paul will pick this up again in 1 Corinthians 15. Look there as well, because I want you to see how the New Testament wants you to see these, wants you to say, oh, embedded back in the Old Testament are all these beautiful pictures of Jesus. Because when you ask, how were people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved as they caught a glimpse of Christ through types and shadows as the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and they believed in the one who was to come, represented in types and shadows. So, 
Look at how Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. It is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Paul sums this whole argument up in verse 49 when he says, As we have borne the image of the man of dust, that would be Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now let me point out some of the main contrasts drawn between Adam and Christ. The first is, God made a covenant. In fact, it's called that in Hosea 6. God made a covenant with one man to represent all mankind. This was a covenant of works. When Adam sinned and fell, you and I sinned. And we share the guilt of Adam's disobedience. We share the disability of Adam's corruption and the curse flowing from his treason. Now, right now, there's somebody who says, Hey, I don't like that. Carl, I heard you. You just said, when Adam sinned and fell, you and I sinned. That's not fair. I don't like it that somebody else's actions can be imputed to me. Then you'll hate the gospel. Because that's what the statement of the gospel is. If you don't like the representative principle, you'll not like, if you don't like the type, you'll sure not like the anti-type. Because after Adam's failure, God inaugurated a new covenant with one man. To represent all the elect. This was a covenant of grace. When Jesus perfectly obeyed as the last Adam, you and I have his obedience imputed to us. And so we have had, the moment we're conceived, we have the first Adam's disobedience imputed to us. But when we embrace Christ in faith, we have his obedience imputed to us. Adam is the federal head of a race. Jesus is the greater federal head of a race. Now, think about some of the contrasts between Adam and Christ. Adam goes into the garden with all the privileges. He's an image bearer. He's God's dominion agent over every living thing. He has every fruit and vegetable to eat, and they're amazing. All except one. He could eat the tomatoes before the fall. Sandy and I, a few years ago, when the church very generously sent us to Albania to to go for Bertie and Jenny's particularization of the church in Duras, Albania, we made a stop for a few days in Italy just to eat some pizza. And when we were there, the first thing we said, by the way, when you go to Rome, I got a restaurant recommendation for you. But when we went to Rome, the first thing we said is we took the first bite of a tomato. We looked at one another and said, we don't really know what we've been eating for 58 years, but it's not been tomatoes. Because these are so amazing. And I said to Sandy, I think this is like what Adam had in the garden. This is what fruits and vegetables taste like before the fall. Adam had that sort of privilege. He could eat every fruit and vegetable except one, and they were amazing. He entered into a pristine world that we are told in Scripture was very good, untainted by sin and death and corruption. He even has a helpmate. And if Adam is to fall, it will not be for any lack of provision from God. God has placed him in a perfect setting. The second Adam is exactly opposite, a pure contrast. The second Adam comes to the earth as one who is lowly and unknown. He experiences hunger. He fasts for 40 days before meeting with the evil one. He's utterly alone. He enters into a world that's filled with violence, ignorance, evil, and death, defaced and infected through 
the first Adam's failure. And where Adam found optimal conditions for fulfilling his role, the second and last Adam found the deck stacked against him everywhere he turned. When Jesus goes to the garden to be obedient to the Father, he undoes Adam's disobedience in a garden. When Adam hides behind a tree, naked, covered in shame, Jesus hangs on a tree, openly naked, and conquers shame. Where Adam's sin brings the curse of thorns, Jesus wears the crown of thorns to bring us to salvation. Where Adam begins in paradise but is forced outside the gates due to his sin, Jesus suffers outside the gates but ends up in paradise due to the cross. When Adam failed in his headship and blamed his wife, Jesus, the second Adam, put all the blame on himself to make his bride clean. Why should we study the types? What are the benefits? Let me tell you a few things that types do and why all Christians should be familiar with biblical typology. And I'll tell you, since tomorrow's, again, the 42nd anniversary of my conversion, my response was very immature when I came to Saving Faith. When I heard that day, that morning of Memorial Day in 1980, my first response was I was mad. I was mad at the church I grew up in because I thought, why hasn't anybody told me that Jesus is God? Why hasn't anybody told me that I must repent and believe in him as fully God and fully man? And my my anger grew over the next few weeks before I was told to cut it out and repent. But I, I was so upset that I hadn't been taught that I'd been bumping along at this third grade Sunday school level. And so one of the things that I I so want for you is you be well taught, well schooled, the whole counsel of God, and that you mature. And so let me tell you a few benefits for you from studying types, and I hope that you'll throw yourself into it with abandon over the next three months. The first is what you're going to see is you're going to see that typology is what unites the Old Testament to the New Testament. When we look back and we see how, how John writes about it, here's when he, when he writes about Jesus being lifted up on the cross, the first thing he thinks about is the serpent lifted up, the bronze serpent. Because he was so schooled in the types. He was looking forward to the, the fulfillment of that type and shadow in its anti-type, Jesus on the cross. The apostle had every reason to know and believe that God was orchestrating history to foreshadow Christ. God orchestrated Old Testament types, persons, events, and other institutions whose full meaning couldn't be ascertained until the coming of Christ. A second reality and reason why you should want to study the types is typology identifies who Jesus is. What you're going to be shocked at is, for the apostles, typology became the dominant way to explain the Messiah's identity. When the the apostles put pen to paper to write the New Testament books, and they would speak of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, they almost always connect him to, he's the new Moses, the new prophet. He's the new Melchizedek, or Aaron, the priest. He's the new David, the king. Likewise, when John says in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's simply pointing to the Old Testament type of the Passover lamb to explain Jesus' identity. 
And then another thing that typology will do for you. It will cause you to marvel at the wisdom of God's progressive revelation. You're going to see that there's simply one unified story in the Bible. This is one of the things as a 20-year-old new convert, I had no idea why all these things were in the Bible. They, it certainly wasn't a jigsaw puzzle that could be fit together. I just thought, it's random. And what you will see as we study the types is there's nothing of the sort. It's a tightly orchestrated progressive revelation. As one united story of salvation, the Bible reveals a system of types and shadows that range from the last Adam, from the first Adam to the last, from the Garden of Eden located on the mountain of God to holy Mount Zion, which becomes a garden city. And in the center of it all, running through the entire Bible, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is what ties together the Old and New Testament. So as God's full and final revelation, it's not surprising that God would create the world, history, and the Bible to reflect His Son and progressively reveal His Son whose Word holds together all things. And I would tell you, as a church, certainly the broader church, but we need typology. Beginning with the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, the first gospel promise, God has been saving his people by means of faith in his gracious promises. And while the Old Testament saints, they, they couldn't grasp the virgin birth of the Roman cross, they did believe in the shadows of the cross. A God who would provide a substitutionary sacrifice and one who could raise the death to life. Through type and shadow, God proclaimed the gospel to Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And now situated at the end of redemptive history. We must understand these types so we can rightly interpret God's word and appropriately reply to God's son. So in this way, typology is a legitimate, necessary, and fruitful means of knowing the God who made the world to glorify his son. And we should be delighted at this opportunity over the next several weeks to see Christ in all the scriptures. Let's pray together. Our Father, the Apostle said, I want to know Christ. And our heart beats after the same desire. We want to know him in the types and shadows, and we want to know him in the fulfillment. And so we ask over the next several weeks that you would gird up our minds, that you would mature us, from spiritual infancy to new maturity. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.